So as we begin reading in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. I was listening to a podcast the other day as I was driving down the road. This one statement from that podcast stood out to me. He says, I try to continually remember in my life that I'm always about five minutes from completely destroying it. And at at first, you know, it comes across, you think five minutes from destroying your life sounds a little extreme. But as you think through it, it's not extreme. It's actually very true. When David stood on the roof and observed Bathsheba taking a bath, I think it's probably less than five minutes before what was rooted in his mind that would lead to sin, which would lead to more sin, which would lead to lies and cover-ups and murder and death would take place. Travesty within his life. A few weeks ago, we were driving down the road. We were coming up by the junction. And as we were getting closer to the junction, a van was coming from the other way, a large van. And it was headed our way. And it was all over the road, back and forth, one shoulder to the other just shy of the snowbank on each side. And I immediately started to slow down, and I popped the car into neutral so that I could slow it down a little quicker. And I'm just watching the thing coming. It's kind of like when you run into somebody in the hallway and neither of you knows which way to go. <laughs> you kind of do that little dance in the hallway. Well, that's kind of what we're doing in vehicles. I'm sitting in the car, slowing her down, hoping he gets it straightened out, not knowing if he's going to, not wanting to be completely stopped, because if I'm stopped, I can't do anything at the last minute. And I'm just watching this thing get closer to us. Well, he did not regain control. And finally, just as he came, he swung over to this side just as he got toward us. And he turned and he was heading straight toward us. And I'm watching him right out my side window come right at us. And I took the car and I turned it right into the snowbank and off into the ditch. And I thought sure he was going to hit me right at the rear tire as he's coming towards us. And he just missed the back of our car. And he himself hit the ditch at that point and spun around. Thankfully, everybody's fine. Afterwards, driving down the road, I was thinking about... The fact that in a moment your life can change. In a moment your life can end. I wasn't doing anything wrong or or anything particularly right by driving down the road at the time. It was just a timing thing. But you know what? The fact of the matter is that in our life, the decisions that we make, we can make the wrong decision in in just a moment of time that will lead to the destruction of our life and other people's around us that will negatively impact our life. Now, the positive side to that is we can also make decisions in a moment of time that will bless our life and bless the other people around us. But the danger is there. The danger exists. And as we look at the fall of mankind here this morning, we're seeing one moment in time. How long did this conversation take? It doesn't look like it took very long. One moment in time, and look at the devastation that came in its wake. One moment of a decision and Adam and Eve were plunged into sin and would now experience death, which they would not have experienced otherwise. 
The whole nature, the Bible tells us, is groaning under the impact of sin. Every time there's a a tornado or a tsunami or an earthquake, it's the groaning of the creation under the impact of sin. In other words, those are all things that wouldn't happen otherwise. I often think of what it must have been like for Adam and Eve to experience one son killing another, especially with the knowledge that if they had not ate that one piece of fruit, it never would have been possible to happen. The destruction that they felt in their own life, and it reverberates even to this day because that sinful nature and the sinful consequences come all the way down to us today. It impacted all of humanity. It's the crisis in the story of the Bible. It's that thing that has to be resolved. It's that problem, that conflict that follows all the way through the plot. It started right here at the fall, shortly after the creation, where they ate, the, they disobeyed, they rebelled against God, ate that wrong piece of fruit, and it continues to this day. And it's also that which is going to be fixed, that which is going to be restored when Christ comes back. As we look at it here this morning, that's what I want to consider is the fall of man. Inside the passage, there are many truths to be believed and understood, and there are many practical implications within our life. The first thing that I'd like to consider as we look through this passage is dealing with Satan's methods. Because that's the first thing that we see within the passage. We see Satan coming to Eve. He's coming disguised. Or maybe I should say he's coming to Adam and Eve because it says that Adam was there with her, at least by the time that she ate the fruit. I don't know if he was in on the whole process or not or if he walked up somewhere during it. But it seems that it might be reasonable to suggest that he was there the entire time. The first thing that we see about Satan's methods is that he questioned God's word. He comes up to Eve and he says, Has God said that you can't eat any of the fruit from the trees within the garden? Now it's a preposterous statement, and Eve kind of points that out to him, although I think she goes a little bit too far because she seems to add to what God said. Because Eve says, no, we can eat from every tree in the garden. And when you think about that, that must have been a lot of trees. She would have had all the different fruits and stuff and vegetables that are disposables that you can imagine. Everything that we have today was already there. And likely there in that one garden. And so talk about a variety of things that you can eat. I remember when we went to visit my parents in Arizona one year, the place that they had rented, every home in the whole park had a grapefruit tree out in their front yard. And I thought, that's kind of cool. Grapefruit's growing right there. You can go pick one off, eat it if you want. I don't like grapefruit, so I'm not that interested. But kind of cool. It's different anyway, right? I grew up where there was lots of cherries and peaches and, and that kind of stuff. But I've never, I've never really been places where there's oranges and things like that growing very much. And so to have those handy like that, well, can you imagine what it would have been like in the Garden of Eden where you had all the variety of all the different things? And Eve says, no, we can eat from all the trees except for this one tree that God's commanded us not to. He said, don't eat it. And then she adds, and don't touch it or you'll die. As far as we know, God never said that to her. But what does Satan do? The first thing he do is he just tries to instill a little doubt. He kind of comes in steps. He comes in stages. He's smart. You know, you notice he's coming to her disguised. He's coming as a, as a serpent, as one of God's creatures. And that would have been probably, I think, more opportunity to deceive Eve because she wasn't there when Adam named the animals. But he comes to her in disguise, and he's going to do this kind of in stages. He's going to lead her down a path that's going to end up in her destruction. He doesn't bring it right off the bat. He kind of eases into it. You know, the Bible tells us that's exactly the way Satan works with us. It tells us that he appears as an angel of light. In other words, he doesn't come as that guy with red horns and the tail and the pitchfork and all that kind of stuff. You'd never listen to him if he did that. But he comes looking attractive and fun and enticing and exciting. 
He disguises himself as an angel of light, and then he goes on to say that's exactly why his teachers, those false teachers out there, come across looking as good teachers of God's will also. And so he's sneaking. And at first he just, he just causes her to question God's word. She's relying on God's word. The only thing she knew about it is what God had told him. Don't eat the fruit or you'll die. And she's been going by that. But he just begins to try to chip away at that. Question it. He starts with a ridiculous statement. Well, of course we can eat some of the fruit. He just kind of gets her to question it. But then also he goes on from there and he contradicts God's word. Because she tells him, well, God said we're going to die if we eat that. Now Satan takes it another step farther and he says, you're not going to die. That's not going to happen. God's word is not really true. He didn't really mean that. And if we think about it, he's questioning something even deeper. He's not only contradicting God's word, but he's challenging God's intent. He's telling her, look, God's holding back on you. He's, he's holding out. God knows that you're not going to die. In fact, you're going to be like God. Now, I think Satan has kind of taken a few notes from himself, maybe, because remember what his sin was. His great sin was, I will be like the Most High. I'm going to occupy the throne. He offers the same temptation to Adam and Eve. You can be like God. God had provided this wonderful garden with this huge variety of things to eat and this very comfortable experience and purpose and value in, in having responsibilities and work to do. He provided all this stuff for him, and Satan is able to turn that around and make it look like he's holding out on him. I've talked to, to children and teenagers and stuff about this before, as I experienced it myself. You know what? When I look back at my family life, I had it great. I had a father and a mother that cared about me very much. I had a family where we felt encouraged, loved. We always lived in a nice home. We got to participate in fun things. My family spent a lot of time camping on weekends. My, my parents coached a lot of our sports programs. In fact, my dad started the sports programs in my town when I was in elementary school just so that my sister and I could play. And so they were very involved in our lives. They were very encouraging towards uh, our schoolwork and wanted us to have good grades, wanted us to succeed, wanted us to do well. I lived in a great home. And you know what? For part of my senior year, I moved out of it because, well, they're just holding me back. I want to do what I want to do, and they won't let me do it. There's happiness out there to have, and they're keeping me from it. You know what? There wasn't a person on the face of the world that loved me and cared for me as much as they did. And I was too stupid to see it for a time. That's the same way when we look at what God is doing. God has provided all these things for, and, and you know what Satan is able to do with Adam and Eve? He's able to get them thinking that God might actually just be holding out on you. He just doesn't want the competition. He just doesn't want you to have this next level of experience. He doesn't want you to be like God. He's holding you down. Now, part of the danger in falsehood is a degree of truth. If you take Satan word for word, a lot of it's true. But the intent, the intent is not true. In verse 7 it says, the eyes of both were opened. Remember what Satan told him? God just doesn't want you to eat that fruit because your eyes will be opened. So he's right, in a sense. Go to verse 22. It says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good from evil. A lot of what Satan said was absolutely true. But it was, as one commentator said, it was the truth that concealed the lie. Their eyes were opened. They did become like God in one sense. But now they knew both good and evil. What they experienced was not what he told them, even though the words were accurate. Because what he was leading them to believe is you're going to be like God. 
Now, what do you think about when you think about you're going to be like God? You're thinking about power, knowledge, ability. You're thinking, I can do anything. I'll know everything. You might not even have specific things that you're thinking about, but, but it's, this is a good experience. This is a next level of experience in this life. This will be awesome. And was it awesome? No. They didn't get all the incommunicable attributes of God. They didn't get His holiness or His righteousness. In fact, they got quite the opposite. They didn't get His omniscience or His power. Absolutely not. If anything, they're diminished. In fact, when you think about it, they're less like God after this than they were before this. Because remember, they were made in the image of God. They were made in the likeness of God. But now, by participating, by rebelling against God and committing this sin, they're actually less like God now than they were when they started. So Satan is telling them, you're going to be more like God. Actually, they end up less like God. It's a complete lie. And what are their eyes open to? Before, their eyes were open to good. They saw the goodness of the fruit that was created for them to eat. And they saw the goodness of the animals that they got to take care of. And the goodness of the world that they were in charge of under God to exercise dominion and to subdue it. And they saw the goodness of a purposeful life as they carried out their existence before God. And they saw the goodness of their father as they related to him daily in the garden. And they saw the goodness of this experience of marriage as they were together as one flesh in a true unity. Never again would they experience all those things to that level, to that level of goodness. Now, what do they get? Now they get to know good and evil. Can you tell me the plus side of knowing evil? There isn't one. They would experience evil after this. They're going to experience death, and they're going to experience pain, and they're going to experience sorrow, and they're going to experience all the things that we look forward to never experiencing again when we get to the new heavens and the new earth. And so the literal wording of Satan was true, and it was covering a horrendous lie. But that's what he's doing. He's challenging God's intent. He's saying, look, God is, God is holding back on you. And you know what? He does the same thing in our lives today. He brings things across, temptations across, and says, look, this is going to be fun. Do this. Look, this is beautiful. This is attractive. This is exciting. This is, and what does he do at the same time? Boy, God won't let you do that. God won't let you do this. I've had people tell me, I don't want to be a Christian because I like to do a lot of things that they don't do. It's too restrictive. It's, it's not fun enough. If we fall for that and we participate in that, we find that it's not what we thought it was. It's not, it's not satisfying. I'm not going to say that it doesn't have some fun that comes with it sometimes. Even the Bible says, talking about Moses, that he set aside the pleasures of sin for a season and chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God. Part of faith in God is recognizing that there's a greater happiness that exists in the right relationship with God than there is in following the short-term pleasures of sin in our life. But you know what? If you follow that path into sin, you quickly find that that thing that you thought you were exercising your freedom to participate in is actually bringing you into bondage. It brings you bondage into your, in your character. It brings you in bondage to that, to that temptation, to that sin, that thing which you thought you could freely indulge in, enjoy it for a little while and leave it behind if you wanted to, you find it's not so easy to leave behind. And that's exactly what Adam and Eve experienced. Satan questioned God's word, led to his contradicting God's word, and in doing so, challenging God's intent. You know, if God would create you to begin with, give His Son to die on the cross for you, I guarantee you, He has your ultimate happiness in mind. He just knows a better way to get there and a more lasting way to get there. 
These little shortcut things, and if you think about temptation, that's often what it is. It's a shortcut to what God actually did intend for us. And taking those shortcuts never lead to the kind of joy that taking God's path do. So we see Satan's methods in the way that he deals with Adam and Eve. But then not only do we see Satan's methods, we also see man's blunder. Now what what exactly is man's blunder? Man's blunder is deciding that you're going to make up your own mind about what is right and wrong, good and bad, or good and evil, independent of God and His Word. It says about Eve in verse 6, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and she ate. You see what's happening here, what she's doing? It started out when she was very first challenged. She was challenged about what did God say. And she dealt with that for a moment. But by this time, Satan's got her off of that path. He's already contradicted God's word and she is willing to leave it behind. And so now she's taking a look for herself. She's going to analyze it herself. She's going to make her own decision within the freedom of her will. How does it look? What do I see? And she starts to evaluate this tree of the knowledge of good and evil based on her own, what do you want to call them, instincts? How long could she even have been around by this time? <laughs> can't even say she's got a lot of experience to bank off of. I'd say she has almost none. But she's deciding, that, you know what, she's going to make up her own mind. And so she takes a look at the fruit. She looks at it and she says, boy, it looks like it tastes good. It has a physical appeal to it. And I could see where she maybe see it that way. Because she's eaten lots of other fruits off lots of other trees in the garden and they all taste good. This one looks like it probably tastes good also. And so she's looking up fruit and says, well, it tastes good. It looks like, looks like it's good for food. It looks like you should eat it. All this other fruit is here for the purpose of eating. So maybe we should eat it. And so it has that physical appeal. Not only does it have a physical appeal, but it also has appeal in an ascetic way. In other words, it looks good. You know, when you think about these things, isn't this, a, isn't this the same thing that trips us up? That looks like it would feel good. That looks like it would taste good. That looks like it would... You know, that's why diets are so hard. All the stuff that's good for you tastes horrible. Maybe not all of it. Okay, I like peaches and pears. When it tastes really good, you know you really shouldn't eat it. For the most part, right? That's kind of a good rule of thumb. Our temptations often have a, a physical appeal. But, boy, that tastes good. Boy, that, that feels good. There's a physical element of the appeal. Not only that, there's often an ascetic appeal. Boy, that looks good. That's attractive to me. That's desirous on my part. I like to look at that, and I shouldn't. There's another appeal that we see here, too. And it's an intellectual appeal. Because she's, she's making her own deci- decision now. She's probably feeling kind of smart. Making her own research or evaluation. And she says, well, it looks like it would make me wise. Now I've got to admit, this, this part is comical almost to me if it wasn't so tragic. Because I, I think of it and I think, you know what, I, I grew up picking fruit, right? I, I lived in central, south central Washington state. All around us were, were pears. In fact, when we moved in, our house was, was planted on an alfalfa field right next to a grape vineyard just beyond a prune orchard and right by a pear orchard. Right? And that was next to an apple orchard. And I grew up where we grew, where we grew hops and wheat and corn and, and, and we grew cherries and peaches and, and apples and pears and, and we were just surrounded by produce. And I grew up picking some of those things for summer jobs. And 
You know what? I've never looked at one piece of fruit and thought, boy, that looks like that would really make me smart. <laughs> what is it about a piece of fruit that can make you smart? Now, I understand. I'll give you this. You're smart if you eat a lot of it. It is a healthy thing to eat. Eve, in all of her sophistication and knowledge in making this decision, has decided there's even an intellectual component about it. I will be smarter if I eat this. Aren't we challenged by the same thing? Don't people come across in a way that if you, boy, if you take the Bible for what it says, you're kind of foolish, you're kind of, you're kind of unlearned, you're kind of immature, you're kind of... We all like to be viewed as smart, as knowledgeable, intellectual, but you feel like sometimes the world, Satan, makes you feel like those two are incompatible. Holding to God's Word and having this intellectual capacity are kind of incompatible. Eve really thought she was making the smarter choice. There's a whole lot of times where we feel like we're making the smarter choice and we make a stupid decision because it leads us away from God and it leads us into more bondage in our lifestyles. It leads us, instead of an exercise of our freedom that we think it is at the beginning, it leads us into that bondage. And then lastly, it led to shame. Remember we talked about how it says that their eyes were opened? Satan told them, your eyes will be opened when you eat this fruit, and their eyes were opened. But when their eyes were opened, what did they see? I'm thinking that when they ate that fruit, they thought, I'm going to take a bite of this fruit, and what am I going to see? My eyes are going to be opened. And all of a sudden, you know what they saw? Their own shame. Their own nakedness. Their own humbling. Their own, their own guilt. And there's, it's an interesting discussion, actually, but the, dif- the difference between guilt and shame. I think it might be dealing with both of them, actually, here, because in, in eating this piece of fruit, they're rebelling against God, and they are falling into guilt. They're experiencing guilt for the first time in their life. But I think they're also experiencing shame for the first time in their life. You see, guilt is kind of an objective. Well, there's an objective and a, and a subjective side to it, but it's kind of an objective reality. You are guilty because of what you did. Shame is because of my guilt, I feel diminished. Who I am has been compromised. Remember the passage that we looked at dealing with marriage? It said with the man and his wife, they were both naked and unashamed. And they think now they're making the smart decision and they thought this was going to set them free and immediately they're covering up. They're covering up. Let me hide this. And so it did not lead to what they thought it would lead to. You know what? Romans chapter 5 looks back at the time with Adam and it puts all the blame right square on Adam. Adam and Eve, as I said, are there together. Eve seems to have taken the lead even though she is created as the helpmeet. She seems to be kind of taking the lead in this uh, exchange between Satan and her. Adam kind of follows along and does it, but he's where the buck stops. He's uh, the one responsible. All through the Bible, it lays it at the feet of Adam. In Romans chapter 5, verse 12, it says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. And then a few verses later, in verses 18 and 19, it says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners... You see what it points out in those three little verses there? It points out that because of what Adam did, because of him eating that fruit, that in rebelling against God in that way, falling to that temptation, the outcome is death in verse 12. It's condemnation 
in verse 18, and it's that we're all made sinners in verse 19. When we decide we're going to evaluate things on our own, we have enough life experience, we have enough knowledge to be able to decide what's right and wrong on our own, independent of the Word of God, we're headed for catastrophe. But you know what? The last part of this I want to focus on, and as we look at uh, kind of the meta narrative of the Bible or the big picture of the Bible, I think this needs to be brought in to recognize it, and that is the redemption that we have in Christ. We've seen Satan's methods. We've seen man's blunder, and we need to consider Christ's redemption. Now, Christ's redemption, and the reason we bring this up, and I think every commentary I picked up in reading about this passage also went to Christ's, Christ's temptation. When you get up to Matthew chapter 4 in the Gospels, you see Christ going through a temptation. His temptation would be harder. Adam and Eve were tempted in a garden where they had everything. Christ was driven by the Spirit out into the wilderness where he had nothing. Adam and Eve were well fed from the garden. Christ would go 40 days without food and water. He would be hungered and thirsty. Adam and Eve had the the comfort and the safety and the security of the garden. Jesus says he was out there with the wild beasts. And both of them would be directly tempted by Satan himself. They would both be challenged along the same lines. God's word would be questioned, it would be contradicted, it would be twisted, but Christ would overcome. You see, when Adam and Eve ended up questioning God's word, Jesus Christ quoted it. When you look through Matthew, he's, he's presented three temptations in a row by Satan. And in each temptation, Jesus quoted scripture as the answer to that temptation. He didn't question God's word. He relied upon it. He depended upon it. He leaned on it. And that's amazing when you consider this fact that Jesus Christ could have said anything that he wanted and it would have been the Word of God, partly because he is God and partly because it's recorded for us in the Word of God. But even he quoted back into the Old Testament Scriptures to stand under Satan. Adam and Eve questioned God's Word. Christ quotes it. And so he also experienced a temptation. Now in that temptation, we find two things that we need to bank on, and we need to do it in this order. The first one is his accomplishment. You see, the temptation of Christ was very important because he was undergoing the temptation of Satan on our behalf. When we recognize that Christ overcame temptation for us, it frees us to then live in his victory. When I face temptation, I can know that temptation is already overcome in the temptation of Christ. So I can live in that overcoming. And it frees me and empowers me to be able to experience victory in those times of temptation because of my bond with Jesus Christ who already accomplished this. There's a second benefit to us as well, and that's in His example. Because we see the way that He handled temptation. And and we can put those same things into practice ourselves. He relied on Scripture. And He relied on the good intent of His Heavenly Father. And so we can follow His example, but don't miss this, because oftentimes we kind of skip right over it. The first and primary is to rest in His accomplishment. You see, Christianity is not about Jesus giving you a little boost so you can do it on your own. Christianity is all about the fact that you cannot do it on your own. You cannot live the Christian life on your own. You cannot live the values of the Word of God or keep fulfill His laws on your own. 
because of what Jesus Christ did for us, taking this temptation upon himself and succeeding, going to the cross and dying, rising again from the dead. Because of all of that, we can put our faith and trust in him. And as we learn to walk with him in this relationship with him, we will overcome in temptation. Why? Because we're walking with him who already overcame for us. And so we find in him the liberty and the freedom and the power to overcome temptations in our life as we walk in the Spirit and not in the flesh. And that's why when we look back at Romans chapter 5, verses 18 and 19, at first when we went through it, we recognized that because of Adam's sin, we have the condemnation. Because of Adam's sin, we're all made sinners and we experience death. Now in that same verse, it's a comparison, a contrast with what we have in Jesus Christ. It says, One act of righteousness leads to justification, and the many will be made righteous. He achieved our justification. He achieved our righteousness. We experience that as we walk with Him in faith.